0: Jonathan Newman is an ecologist who studies plant-animal interactions in the context of species invasions and climatic change. He is the lead author of two books, Climate Change Biology, Defending Biodiversity, Environmental Science and Ethics, and co-author of Grasslands and Climate Change. He is the author of more than 100 other scientific publications.
1: Professor Jonathan A. Newman, welcome to the One Planet Podcast.
2: Thanks, Maya. Thanks for having me.
1: So you really have a wide area of focus, conservation, climate change, grasslands, environmental ethics, plant-fungal interactions. Could you just walk us through what drew you to ecology and your main areas of research and how this work differs from your leadership roles, first as founding director of the School of Environmental Science at University of Guelph, and now as the vice president of research at Wilfrid Laurier University.
2: Sure. I think I started as a fairly uninspired undergraduate. I attended at least some of my classes. I muddled my way through the first few years, but I wasn't particularly excited about anything. I didn't know what I wanted to do or wanted to be. And then in my third year, I just took a course in behavioral ecology that completely excited me and I wound up working in the faculty member who taught that course, I wound up working in his lab as a student over the summer. And then he supervised a bunch of undergraduate research projects that I did. And that drew me into applying for a PhD under his supervision. So my supervisor was called Tom Carrico at the State University of New York at Albany which rebranded itself recently to UAlbany. I was initially drawn by the use of mathematical models to predict behavior. I just thought that was completely cool. And became very interested in doing that. And I did that through my graduate work. I moved, after my graduate work, I moved to do a postdoc in Oxford on basically sheep grazing. I know that sounds a bit odd, but as an ecologist, I was interested in it sheep. They're a good large mammal model. They're easy to deal with. You can have lots of replication. And there I really became interested beyond just their grazing behavior, but I became interested in how that affects the plant community. Before that, I never worked on plants. I never even took a botany course. So in many ways, I'm a fairly poor plant biologist, but I know what I know around the, the species I study. And that's got me into grasslands. It got me into plant community college. And a lot of plant community colleges also deals with invasive species. It's a major problem in grass conservation. And of course, many of the species of plants I was working on, grazing animals, are themselves invasive species. They're not native to North America, for example, but they're all over the place because they were introduced for agriculture and for turf grass. Climate change came at the very end of my postdoc. I wasn't even particularly interested in climate change. It was not, if you'll pardon the pun, it was not the hot topic that it is today. In the early 90s, it was somewhat of a fringe topic. A few ecologists were working on some questions around it. And my colleagues wanted to go after climate change in grasslands, and they wanted me to participate, which I, I said, I didn't care that much about the subject, but I like my friends. I wanted to be a part of that project. So we, I started doing a lot of reading, we wrote the grant proposal. It was not successful, the grant proposal. And then I moved to the U S for a faculty position and I'm the only one who continued to work on climate change out of that entire out of that entire episode. And so I have been And that, that system that we proposed the grant on is a big part of my research program. It's this interaction between plants, grasses in this case, and fungus that lives entirely inside the grass. It has no external life. It doesn't produce spores that persist in the environment. And it's, it is, biologically is very interesting because it's transmitted from mother to daughter. So it's called vertical transmission. Uh, you can put two plants next to each other. One is infected with the fungus, one isn't, and it'll never cross because it doesn't spread that way. It spreads only through vertical transmission. And vertical transmission is interesting evolutionarily because it's like an inherited trait. Like, so if the fungus was detrimental to the host, you would expect to just see it lost from the population because it's just like having a deleterious gene that that causes you to have some kind of malady, eventually that will get selected out. So it, it's an example that um, evolutionarily we would say this is a mutualism. The fungus helps protect the grass and the grass provides a home and nutrients to the fungus. And they, these infected plants actually do better than uninfected plants in many kinds of measurements. So. Even though it looks, Maya, like I work on all these weird things that are not connected to each other, there actually is a thread through my career. There is some coherence to it. But once you start working on invasive species or climate change, it's not uncommon to get asked to do things that are not really in your core research program. They're just research collaborations that somebody needs your help on or your expertise to apply to a different problem. So I've done my fair share of those as well. But they're always in that grasslands, climate change, invasive species. And when I say grasslands, I really mean temperate grasslands. I'm not talking about like the savannas of Africa or something like that. I mean, the grasslands we would find in North America or Europe or some places in Asia.
1: And then from this research capacity, that's a, a different hat again. And I think being broad, well, I'm broad too. So I think that's great because It's good to know one particular area, but it's also particularly very important to be interdisciplinary and to see how it all works together. So you've also had a number of leadership roles.
2: I have, yeah. That in academia, nobody goes into academia thinking I'm going to be an academic leader. We have a culture in academia that we generally do not bring in leaders from outside of academia. And nothing about the training of Faculty, the training of to graduate school, and then as a faculty member, has anything to do with leadership, particularly. And so, as a consequence, we tend to struggle to have good leadership in academia. I think lots of people go into it well-meaning, but not having had any training in it, and then they muddle through and not very efficient. In my case, I had a strange other background that actually started before I went to university. I was a soldier in the American Army Reserve, and and I filed as an army reservist all the way through to the early 2000s. I think I retired in 2005, but much of that was as an officer. So I had a lot of leadership training. I, my field as an officer was logistics. So actually makes you pretty good at managing things as well as people. And I didn't just, my colleagues, it was time to change chairs. We come to an end of it, a term for a chair. My colleagues asked me if I would stand put my name forward to be chair the charity department, which I did. And then my department merged with another department and we formed a school. My department at the time was environmental biology. We merged with a department called land resource science to form a new school of environmental sciences. And I became the founding director of that. So that really is extremely interdisciplinary, a school of environmental science, because it runs the gambit from people who are geologists, to soil scientists, to entomologists, to microbiologists, to ecologists, very broad uh, field of science. I mean, it's almost like being a dean of a faculty of science in some ways. And I think once you get on that track of being an academic leader, if you're good at it, people keep encouraging you to go for go for the next job. What I always liked about it is I, I like to help my colleagues to accomplish things they want to accomplish. That's really what motivates me to do this. And I think I'm think I'm pretty good at it. And so I continued on. I, I was a, a dean and then now I'm a vice president of research, which gives me kind of some level of responsibility over all the research that happens at the university, not just in my discipline.
1: And there are some interesting partnerships with the government of the Northwest Territories and also with some corporations, some businesses?
2: Yeah. As I said, I'm an ecologist and I'm a temperate grassland ecologist. So the North in Canada is not an area that I study at all, but when I took over as the vice president research here, I inherited a responsibility for managing our largest partnership, which is with the government of the Northwest Territories, which is all the way up north and west, thousands of kilometers from southern Ontario, where we're located. It's an interesting partnership. It just formed but we had a number of individual researchers that were working in the Northwest Territories. They're all doing environmental research. So, uh, a lot of work on permafrost, for example. The Northwest Territories is the front line of climate change. It's happening there, you can see it happening. Everything that they do in terms of governance is done through the lens of climate change. And so we have a lot of climate change researchers that work up there on things like carbon sequestration and forest dynamics, which are all related to carbon is the currency of climate change. And those individual projects just were rolling along. And... Canada has an interesting uh, granting program here called the Canada Foundation for Innovation. They basically fund infrastructure and they have an interesting formula where you apply to them, but they only give you 40% of what you need. You're supposed to get the other 40% from your province and 20% from somewhere else. We wrote a grant to build a building for cold regions and water science. And we got the money, but then Ontario said they didn't want to fund their part of it. So we actually asked the government of the Northwest Territories if they would kick in. And, you know, we showed them all the work we do with them and how this would benefit them. And they agreed. And that was the impetus of signing a 10-year agreement, which we just renewed in 2019 for another 10 years. So what really started in environment and natural resources is now spreading to things like education, social work, Northern history, for example. These are all areas we're exploring and forming new research partnerships, and not just with the government. Now that we're there, we're busy forming partnerships with non-governmental organizations. We're also talking with some of the indigenous governments in the region about research partnerships. So we're really spreading out our activities in the north, and we've been growing steadily for 12 years of the agreement now, or 13 years of the agreement, but starting from a base already. So we have a lot of activity there. And I guess it's interesting why Laurier, where, as I said, we're located thousands of kilometers away from Yellowknife, the capital of the Northwest Territories. There are other universities that are around. So it's an odd partnership. Why us? But it works well because we're both looking for partnerships. We both have similar interests, similar research interests and needs, and it seems to just work and that seems to work well. So I think it's going to go on for years to come, and. We may end up having a campus in the North, you know, we already have offices there. I have staff that are permanently located in Yellowknife. And we have a faculty member who was just starting in July. She will actually be physically based in Yellowknife uh, for most of the year.
1: Well, it's interesting that it stretches across Canada. I, I want to go to your book. You're the co-author of Defending Biodiversity, Environmental Science and Ethics. I didn't even realize that the science of defending biodiversity was fuzzy in areas. What kind of conversations do you have with environmentalists, biologists, wildlife managers, and how could we more effectively be communicating the science and integrating that with ethics and philosophy?
2: I started teaching, I was not even trained as a conservation biologist. I was trained as an ecologist. And at that time, conservation and ecology were really different fields. It's not so much true anymore. Now when you go to ecological society conferences, you will see lots of sections that are just dedicated to conservation biology. So boundary is gone now, I think. But because I was trained as an ecologist, I never really studied conservation biology. But in my first faculty position, I ended up teaching it. It's not uncommon. You're Teach this kind of thing and you go, okay, I better learn it. I think we're trained as scientists. And I don't want to say that ethics is not part of science. It clearly is, but we're not particularly trained to think about ethics as scientists and certainly not in the days when I went to university. Now, I hope we do a better job of doing that. It's not an area you can just dabble in without a background. You can, but you're, you get it wrong. And scientists do all the time, even when we're talking about philosophy of science, which is another discipline in philosophy. we regularly just cherry pick philosophers who've said something that supports our position. And we take that as fact when, in fact, when you dig into the field, of philosophy, you find out that's not fact at all. and there may be a very highly contested idea. So we're not very intelligent consumers of ethics or philosophy, I would just say on the whole. And I didn't think about it at all when I was teaching really the textbooks would have a chapter on at the beginning on why should we want to conserve biodiversity. And because I wanted to conserve biodiversity, I never even questioned it. It was like, oh of course we want to do it's uh it's just like a selection bias, right? Unconsciously just take on board all these ideas because they support the view that I already have. I never really questioned them intellectually at all. In early 2000s, I think 2001, I uh, participated in something that was described as a bioethics institute. It was basically a week-long boot camp taught by a bunch of philosophers primarily animal philosophers and environmental philosophers for faculty members in the life sciences so that we would be able to teach some ethics in our courses. Their idea being if the only place that science students, biology students get exposed to ethics is in the philosophy department, then they don't think of it as being a part of their discipline. Whereas if their own faculty that are teaching them their discipline are also integrating ethics, then the idea would be they start to realize, oh, wait, this is important to my discipline and I need to know this stuff. That stimulated my thinking and actually made me then start to question all my foundational premises for this. And over the years, I engaged in lots of conversations with biologists, conservation biologists, environmentalists, et cetera, and I found myself having the same conversations over and over again. And at a very superficial level, I like to describe it like, this, I'm not sure the analogy will play with everybody, but if you've ever seen chess played by high level people, the beginning of a chess match is almost choreographed because there are a whole bunch of well-known opening moves, sometimes called gambits. And there's a famous one, for example, called the King's Gambit. And just that when the white player moves the pawn in front of the king, two spaces, there are five different ways you can respond to that. And they all commit you to different defenses. It's, I would say it's similar in describing environmental ethics is that if we just focus on biodiversity for a minute, there are about seven or eight opening moves that people make in this argument about why should we conserve biodiversity? And they're made by people like me, right? They're made by conservation biologists, uh, ecologists, but we're often unaware that there are just well-known responses to each of those opening gambits in the field of environmental ethics, which I think if you question nine or 10 conservation biologists, I'd be willing to bet few of them even know that environmental ethics is a discipline, let alone know what's being argued about in there. And so I was frustrated because after that institute, I spent years reading and talking with philosophers about these things. I was frustrated, I was not getting anywhere with my colleagues. I invited a colleague, an environmental ethicist from Texas A&M that I've been talking to for years about this stuff. I invited him, I said, we need to write a book about this, where we integrate the environmental science and the ethics together. And we critically analyze the opening arguments in this discussion and there are two kinds of groupings of arguments they're are what are called instrumental value arguments it's like we should conserve biodiversity because biodiversity is useful to us in some way that's the instrumental part of it the foundation of whether those are good arguments or not is the science what does the data actually say about these arguments so for example we should conserve biodiversity because We may need it as a source of food, fiber, and medicines. Okay, what's the evidence that we do need biodiversity for that? And on the other side, there are these things called intrinsic value arguments. And that is we should conserve biodiversity, not because it's useful to us, but because it should exist in its own right. It's an end in itself, so to speak. And those arguments really rest on the philosophical analysis. And so we brought those two things together in the book, Defending Biodiversity. You, like other people who have read the book, uh, some others have remarked that they didn't realize that the science was not as firm as we might portray it to be. It's like when we dip into philosophy, we don't really know what we're getting because we're not really trained in that field. The same thing happens when philosophers dip into environmental sciences. They also grab things that they are taking for granted that there isn't some argument going on in a discipline. It's just very hard to be interdisciplinary. It's hard to know more than one discipline and to integrate them yourselves. So the philosophers tend to be really surprised about that the science is in his firm. The scientists aren't surprised by it. We argue, we can argue about the interpretation of particular strengths of evidence that's being, but at the end of the day, I think many environmental scientists will admit the weaknesses in in our work. Our work doesn't provide absolute answers. It's not, environmental systems are just inherently complex and noisy. We would use a word we use just to mean that they're very variable. And it's hard to provide really strong evidence for some of these questions. That's not to say we don't know anything. We know lots of stuff. It's just that uh, scientists understand the uncertainty baggage that comes along with their evidence, but they don't always talk about it. They, they know it's there. If you question them, they'll absolutely. But they won't necessarily talk about that. And I think particularly, you know, people who are not reading the actual academic literature getting this from the media. I don't want to paint all people in the media with the same brush, but they're not looking for answers that are uncertain. <laughs> they're looking for black and white answers when they ask you these questions. And so the uncertainty gets lost in the discussion and people just assume that the science is it's fact we know this for a fact and we don't know it for a fact so you started your phd doing a lot of mathematical modeling from
0: what little i know of climate science i assume you still do a lot of mathematical modeling it's a completely
2: different subcategory of modeling can you tell me about how your mathematical work has changed over time so i'll just make a distinction first off here that there are two kinds of models that we often talk about here so one are models that are made by climate scientists that project what the future climate will be like in 50, in 100 years from now. I and mean, I don't do that kind of modeling. I use the results of that kind of modeling in my own work. And so the other kind of modeling is to try to predict what the impacts, what are the biological, what are the ecological, what are the conservation impacts of you know, those things that climate scientists are telling us are going to happen. So we imagine what is the world like in 50 years in terms of temperature and precipitation and relative humidity and carbon dioxide concentrations. Now, I could that, there's a whole bunch of different variables we're interested in. But if we look at what will those look like in 50 years, which we're getting from the climate scientists, we use models to try to say, okay, what would the impact of that be? And we use models because trying to do that experimentally is logistically impossible. We do, I do experiments on climate change, but we're doing research like we're nibbling away at it because what you really need to do is you need to be able to vary experimentally all those variables that I just said and test with replicates the effect of those variables. But manipulating those variables is very difficult to do. So take, for example, I want to study the impact of rising temperature. And... Arguably, I want to do that in the field because in the greenhouse, it's not really a mimic for the field. It tells you something, but it doesn't really tell you what's going to happen in the field. Just imagine you're a grassland ecologist. You're working out in in a grassland in southern Ontario. How do you actually increase the temperature in your experimental plots? You can do it. It's very difficult. It's very expensive to do. And then if you want to add in other variables, now you need even more replicates. And it just logistically and financially becomes impossible to really experimentally test the whole suite of variables you need to talk about climate change impacts. And so what we do is we use all these little individual experiments as ways of estimating parameters that go into mathematical models. And we use the models to try to integrate all of those different variables together. I started off as a graduate student modeling animal behavior. I was interested in foraging behavior. You can believe it or not. My experimental work is actually on squirrels, gray squirrels. And I was busy trying to write mathematical models of this behavior. I also wrote a model of sexual cannibalism in spiders. That's also foraging behavior in a way. And then I moved from that to doing more kind of what you might call traditional ecological models, population dynamics models, and now something we call species distribution models, which is trying to say, okay, if we model, where do you find this species on the landscape under current climate? And then you take the relationship between the current climate and their presence or absence, and you then say, okay, now here's where the climate will be in 50 years. Where will we find the species from that? And, and we look at range shifts and changes in distribution. So I do that kind of modeling, done that on lots of insects and a few plants. So like an example of the plants ones, I've done that kind of modeling for miscanthus. It's a very large ornamental grass that you find in a botanical garden or something like that. But it's also being used widely now as a biofuel so people are growing miscanthus so that they can then cut it dry it and burn it as a biofuel we did a study for example of the current distribution of a couple of species of miscanthus and what will they be at the end of the century when climate change has really moved on because we're worried about it as both for production but we're also worried about it as an invasive species almost any plant that's grown horticulturally for food or for ornament. They often is cultivation and they end up as an invasive species in more natural ecosystems. So there's a tie there. So I do big population dynamics models and I do species distribution models, but always are almost always pretty tied to the biology. Like I'm that kind of model or that distinction may not mean anything to you or your audience, but There are nuanced differences in kinds of modeling that happens in ecology, and I'm of the flavor that's very closely tied to the biological details, or you might say less general in that sense.
1: Going back to the climate analytics, because the new data reveals that climate change might be more rapid than originally estimated. So how concerned should we be, and what do you feel, or what are the kind of rapid adaptation needs to take place in order to mitigate climate change and bring about just transition?
2: Yeah, it's frustrating to me. The evidence has been building decades now, and the question of urgency couldn't be clearer. And yet, I'm sighing because I just don't know that we're going to do. We're not. I don't know that we're going to do enough to prevent where we're headed. And you know, it's a combination of, I think, individual psychology, the way that our government cycles work, where our, our politicians are elected on short term accomplishments and goals, not on long-term accomplishments and goals. There's a variety of reasons why it makes it difficult for people and governments to respond in what I think would be appropriate. But I would say it this way, and I'm not really even talking about climate deniers here, right, climate change deniers. I'm talking about people who do think climate change is real, do think it's serious, do think it's important, and yet we still can't take action. For the climate deniers, I would say. There are a whole lot of reasons why we should use less fossil fuel, that even if you don't believe in climate change, there's lots of good other environmental reasons why we shouldn't be using as much fossil fuel as we are, and that it would be a good thing to cut back on. And I think with those people, we've taken the wrong argument. We've taken the argument where we're just going to try to beat you over the head with facts and evidence and end up not convincing you because you didn't come to that conclusion by looking at facts and evidence. You came to that conclusion some other way, and we're not going to shift it with facts and evidence. So I think we need to try other arguments, but that ship may have sailed already. The impacts of climate change are going to be variable. It's going to depend a lot on where in the world you are and what kind of infrastructure and government Capacity? Do you have to manage and adapt to climate change? So there'll be some areas where it's actually going to be somewhat beneficial. I think about some areas of Canada, for example, will be now warm enough to farm, and in the central part of Canada, we're not likely to be affected by rising ocean levels. But in other places, we are very much. So I I mentioned the Northwest Territories at the beginning of this discussion, and I said they are on the front line of climate change. In fact, they are the northern coastline is just, it's disappearing because of climate change. There are going to be climate refugees from that area that will have to move because that part of the world will be uninhabitable because it'll be underwater. And the same places look at the projections for Florida, for example, a lot of Southern Florida will be gone. So there will be some areas that are deeply affected and some areas that less so, or that may even be beneficial. But The other side of that coin is how capable is the government where you live of mitigating those challenges. If you're in one of these low altitude Pacific islands that are just, they're going to be covered by water. The sea rise level are going to cover them. There's not a lot of altitude in those islands, they're just going to be gone. And there's not much a government can do about that other than start planning now to resettle somewhere else, which is, that's a terrible shame. Climate change is certainly going to, for example, affect biodiversity. Some species will benefit from climate change, but others will not. And we'll have different ecosystems, different communities of different biotic communities as a result of this. I, I think the impacts that are likely are pretty clear. And I think that's a pretty good reason to do all those things we can do without completely destroying our economies and our communities because those things have moral value as well. It's not just the environment that we think is important. We also think humans are important and doing the things we can do now, do the less painful things first. We should have done them already and we should be now thinking about how to do the harder things. And it was just in Sweden a couple of weeks ago at the Times Higher Education Impact Summit. And it was all focused on the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. And they kept reminding us, we have eight years to cut our emissions, our carbon emissions by 40%. That's the UN Sustainability Goal. I see almost no way that we're going to do that in eight years. And that's a shame. We've been being told we need to do this for 20 years, 30 years at this point. And now we probably have left it too late, I think. I'm sorry to be a downer here. I'm not very optimistic about our willingness to do something about this, our collective will.
0: Hi, I'm Eric Rosen. What do you do when even someone like Professor Jonathan Newman, a man who is on top of climate change research, someone who knows what's going on, can do nothing but sigh? When someone like him says, yeah, we probably won't stave off climate catastrophe. How should someone like me, young, with a future ahead of me, and feel? I think most people my age feel a mix of anger and despair. Anger that things got this bad, and despair that it's going to get worse. It's one thing to say that we could all make a difference. But what do you do when the sole deciding vote in the American Senate refuses to pursue any energy policy that isn't all of the above, because he makes too much money off of his coal investments. What do you do when the head of responsible investing at HSBC says offhandedly, who cares if Miami is underwater? More and more, I'm starting to realize that there's a very powerful contingent of people who either don't believe in climate change or think that as long as it doesn't harm them, it doesn't matter. And these are people you or I can't reduce the power of in any measurable way. They're just going to sit there, blocking the path of progress as long as they can. So I'm angry. Meanwhile, India's going through another record-breaking heatwave where it's over 110 degrees in the shade. Air conditioning is needed to survive, India's power grid is mostly coal, and so emissions will rise in the next heatwave, like the ones now growing in Europe and Texas, which had to shut down six power plants just in the last month, will get worse. The California mega drought seems to be a new normal, Lake Mead doomed to be nothing more than a puddle in the desert. As Professor Newman noted, Island governments in the Pacific now have no choice but to arrange evacuation plants for their people because where they live will be underwater in decades. For most of humanity, living in the tropics means climate change will make life immeasurably more miserable. Even those who live in the global north will lose cities to the sea and grain belts to the heat. Things are bad now, and they're only going to get worse. So I'm despairing. But the consolation I do have is that plenty of other people in my generation feel the same way. And of those angry and anguished, a good chunk of them have decided to do something about it. Professor Newman will, later in this interview, talk about the technological changes his undergraduates are developing to reduce unrecyclable plastic waste. That's just one new approach to trying to craft a sustainable future. And it's not the only one. Groups like the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion are great examples of turning that rage into concrete demands, into real action. If the generations before us are paralyzed by the world they built when they were young, it falls on us and no one else to build the world again. So as hard as it is, I'm still hopeful. Now, back to the interview. It's not great. I do want to ask more specifically about how climate change affects your field of study in grassland. Why are they important? What's threatening them? And what specifically can we do to preserve those
2: areas of the world? We can certainly talk about grasslands, but I just, it it should go without saying that grasslands are not the only ecosystem that are threatened by climate change. I got into that because that's when I was studying. I was studying grassland ecology, so it made sense for me to study this. Grasslands are major biome, we call it. a biotic ecosystem. And grasslands are a major biome of the world. They cover a vast area of our land surface. They're important economically. In many places, they're used for grazing animals. They're important socially, culturally. They're important ecologically as stores of carbon, for example. You think of forests usually when you think about carbon storage, carbon sequestration, because you're thinking about this big chunk of wood, which is made of carbon. And it's true, forests are good carbon sinks, but grasslands are also very good carbon sinks, but all the carbon is below ground. So they have very carbon-rich soils, and so they're important in that sense. And they are threatened by a number of things. Climate change is only one of them. They're also threatened, for example, by a human encroachment. We keep plowing over grasslands and building buildings on them. They are threatened by our fire suppression, right? We, we tend to control fires in lots of places of the world because we don't want our houses to burn or people to get killed or whatever. But Uh, Fire is an important part of many grassland ecosystems uh, in keeping them grasslands, actually, (laughs) because some kinds of grasses are quite fire-resistant. They'll burn, but they'll sprout right back up from the roots. And often they are more fire-tolerant than trees, so that fire often prevents the conversion of grasslands from grasslands to forested areas, for example. They're affected by our... Not just human encroachment in the sense of building, but in the sense of things like roads, fences. These are things that form barriers to the natural ecology of a grassland. Soil erosion can be a huge problem in places. Compaction, even if we're not plowing over it, we're driving over sometimes. We're running farm vehicles over these areas. That compacts the soil. It threatens the health of the plants and the plant community. And they're threatened by climate change, but even the climate change threats are variable depending on where in the world you are. If you've heard anything about the effects of rising CO2, besides the fact that it warms up the atmosphere, you might have heard that rising CO2 is good for plants. Good for is a hard thing to define, but as as a general statement, it's not bad. We do use, for example, in greenhouse horticulture or greenhouse agriculture, where we're growing things like strawberries and so on. A greenhouse, it's not uncommon for farmers to flood the greenhouse with carbon dioxide because it makes the plants grow faster and bigger. But that's an overly simplistic story. There's lots more to whether it's good or bad for plants. But one thing it is different for is the effects on two different kinds of grasses. And that depends on how they photosynthesize. So there's these things called cool season grasses and warm season grasses. And the general thinking is that Elevated CO2 is beneficial to cool season grasses, but doesn't really have much effect on warm season grasses. And the mix of those kinds of grasses is important to grasslands and, and types of grasslands. So, rising CO2 can change the community composition. Changes in rainfall or moisture are big impacts of climate change. And some grasslands require more water more or less precipitation to maintain their integrity. So changing increased droughts or decreased droughts or increased flooding, these are all things that can affect, that can be impacts of climate change and that can definitely impact grassland composition, grassland functioning.
1: Going back to that question about whether we're going to meet our net zero goals, which I agree. Unfortunately, I wish we were further along the line there, but we have to be realistic so that we actually work harder. Now the smart money is abandoning fossil fuels. Two big questions are coming into focus. How much of the rest of the market will follow the same course? And will enough of the money that's leaving fossil fuels now flow into the technologies and practices needed to diffuse the climate emergency? Do you feel yeah. that the technological innovations will save us from an unsustainable future or will we be overwhelmed by some of these issues challenging the planet, poverty, inequality, pollution, and resource depletion?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question, Maya. In another part of my portfolio as vice president research is innovation and entrepreneurship falls under my portfolio. And the big idea these days in innovation and entrepreneurship is purpose-led organizations. And these are business for good. We want to do better for people and for the environment. And this is more than just saying, well, as part of our corporate social responsibility, we'll support an environmental group or something like that. That's, That's not really what we're talking about here. It's forming businesses that are going to make money, there are commercial enterprises, but that they're doing something good in in this case for the environment. I'll give you uh, an example. We have a company that has formed out of our undergraduates here at Wilfrid Laurier called Earth Suds and they are, you you could think of it as a small thing, but they're tackling the massive amount of plastic waste that goes into landfills um, because oddly, most people don't know this, but lots of the stuff you put in your recycling bin doesn't actually get recycled. It's either too small or in the case that they're tackling, it's often they're not clean. So these are things like shampoo bottles. You think about all the hotels you go to and there's all those little bottles of plastic. Those are generally not refilled. You use them once, they get thrown away and they're full of hand cream or shampoo or whatever. And they're too small anyway to get recycled. So this company created a package-free product. So they're, they're little cubes of soap and lotion and things like that. And you put them in your hand with a little bit of water, you crush them, you lather them up and you can use it just like regular shampoo and there's no packaging that goes with it. That's a small example, there's lots of that kind of innovation going on. Is it going to save us and make a more sustainable future? I don't know if it's going to save us from climate change. I never know, right? There could be somebody's out there working on some really fantastic technology. You know, I would not underestimate human ingenuity, but I don't see it as a technological savior without cutting our fossil fuel emissions. We have to do that. It might sound depressing about climate change. I don't want to underplay the impacts that climate change is likely to have, but it's also unlikely not to stop life on Earth. If we can't stop climate change, we're going to have to learn to live with it, and technology is key to our ability to do that. There's seven and a half billion people on earth. That's a lot of environmental impact that needs to be managed and mitigated if we're going to have a sustainable environment to leave to our children and our grandchildren.
0: But this, it's funny you talk about technology not being the only solution. And that's something I think a lot of people are starting to realize that tackling climate change and figuring out what a post-climate change society, or not post, but like during climate change going can look like is going to be a very interdisciplinary thing and not to put too fine a point on it, but you were, before you really committed to biology, something of an English major. I was, yeah. Yeah. And it's something of a lapsed English major myself, but still
2: a humanities (laughs)
0: guy. (laughs) I got to ask. How did the humanities still factor into your work, both as a VP of research and
2: in your own personal research? That's a great question, Eric. I'll just tell you, I started, I I said I was an uninspired undergraduate when I started. So the reason I also uh, was dabbling as an English major was my girlfriend was an English major. (laughs) It was an opportunity to take classes with her. And that relationship didn't last, but I continued to follow the English track until I finally got inspired by biology. And then I wanted to graduate right away. So I didn't, I never actually finished the um, English degree. I ended up just with an English minor instead of a major. I would say actually though, I went through years as a junior, as an early career researcher where I didn't think about humanities at all. And I was that kind of narrow-minded scientist. There's an actual term for this, scientism, where you think science can answer everything. And I probably was that. I I probably poo-pooed my colleagues in, (laughs) in the arts and humanities out of just sheer ignorance, really, and naivete. What really changed my mind drastically was when I was a faculty member at Oxford, faculty members there belong to one of the colleges, which are these little, they're not colleges like we mean in our North American sense of colleges. They're like these little communities of scholars and students that the colleges may specialize in certain disciplines, but for the most part, you have people from all disciplines in there. And I would just have lunch with these people every day in a way that you don't have it. Like in a North American, you're in a department that's full of people that study the same thing you do. And, you know, maybe you do have friends in other departments, but not that. It's not as much. Everybody was in a different discipline. So every day at lunch, he was talking about all these different ideas and the interconnectedness of these ideas. And then my exposure that I described earlier to environmental ethics really reinforced for me that science can answer some things, but it doesn't answer everything. And if the arts and humanities are crucial to our future in the same way that I would say science is, I know that maybe that's not popular uh, right now where everybody's, the politicians are all arguing that we're just creating a very expensive baristas or things like that. And I just think they're completely wrong. The humanities is essential for us to understand ourselves. What is it to be human? What do we owe to each other? And it, writ large, the humanities are critical like that. I think for environmental science, the environmental humanities is also critical for us to understand, contextualize, and apply the kinds of things we're doing in science. When I taught environmental science as, as the director of the, the school, I taught introduction to environmental science. I said, it's a really tough thing to teach because environmental science isn't actually a discipline. <laughs> It's a collection of disciplines that use to apply, to answer questions in the, about the environment. So you can't just answer an environmental question using science. You need economics. You need history. You need philosophy. You, you need sociology. I, I could keep going. These are critical parts to actually coming up with a solution that will work and implementing that solution. Science alone cannot do that. So... I went through the wilderness for a number of years thinking I didn't really see the value in the humanities, despite my humanities background, uh, into I don't know what you call it, a born again humanist.
1: So important. And also bearing in mind, because you're so deeply in the world of science, there are a lot of people who just don't speak that language, but the humanities are the translators.
2: Uh, the art is, I didn't mention the art, but we started when I start at the School of Environmental Sciences. We started an artist in residence program, which I believe is still going. Every few years they advertise for a new artist in residence and the artist gets inspiration about the environmental science being done and the scientists get exposure to the aesthetic aspects of their work and to how that's viewed by people outside of the discipline, for example. So I think it was a win-win situation and I'm very pleased to have had a small part in getting that started.
1: Yes, I I love those programs. As you reflect, you talk about the environmental humanities or nature writing or elements of the arts that have put that into context for you. What are some of those artists that you draw inspiration from that you turn to when maybe the situation looks a bit bleak and share with us some of your memories of the beauty and wonder of the natural world?
2: I have very eclectic tastes in art. <laughs> it runs the gamut. I am very much like contemporary art, which I know is not everybody's taste. But I also like the nature photography of Ansel Adams, for example. I find it in some cases as beautiful as standing there and looking at the landscape myself. When I can't, that's a source of inspiration. I have a, a research associate, Dr. Heather Hager, works with me in my lab. Heather on the side is an art quilter. She makes art quilts that are not quilts you put on your bed or whatever. And she's inspired by her science. So I actually own one of her pieces, which is the DNA coding of a section of the gene of the fungus that I work on. And she's turned that into colors. But I think I find that the art influenced by nature and science is often attractive to me. And art that is about nature, so like the Ansel Adams kind of stuff, that's not inspired by it is taking nature as its subject. I find both kinds of art inspiring. And I'm not sure if they make me happy, as you said, but they cause me to think. And I think that's a good thing.
1: Well, you've certainly caused us to think. And we really uh, appreciate the, the work that you do, both within your own discipline and drawing in all these other disciplines to make us think about the most important issues of our time. So thank you, Professor Jonathan Newman, for your work that helps us realize that we have a shared destiny and a shared responsibility to save the planet. Thank you for your contribution that helps free us from the uncertainty and explore the ethical and philosophical dimensions of environmentalism and climate change. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast.
0: One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Nia Funk and Eric Rosen with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Eric Rosen. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preissler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.